The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. God has appeared that brings salvation. Let's look together at this passage. It's in Titus, the second chapter. Grace is that which brings to us salvation. Now, if grace is a covering that allows us to continue to walk in sin while we are covered, then it does not bring to us salvation. I would have to ask, salvation from what? And salvation to something? Listen, Titus, second chapter, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Here grace is being identified as Jesus. Jesus is grace. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, I want to read this same passage of Scripture to you from another translation. This is the literal uh, translation of the Scripture, including the tenses. Uh, It's by Dr. Lavender. It's a brand new translation. If you want more information, go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you'll see right at the headline information on this new Lavender Bible that's just been published. took him 15 years. He's an incredible Greek scholar. This is his translation. For the grace of God appeared saving to all men teaching us that having renounced ungodliness and the worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the now age, awaiting the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and one Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let me read this again from the New International Version. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. This is not something that comes covering our sin and then waiting for righteousness to come. It is this grace that brings to us righteousness. While we wait for the blessed hope, that is the second coming of Jesus. So while we wait, he is saying, 
Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, not in the future, now. And then verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. To purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is Paul's word to Titus. So it's very clear. Paul is telling Titus, Do not teach that you must continue in your sin. Do not teach that when you die you will be relieved of sin, because death is is not our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. This is the modern lie of the modern church. And we see the result in America having tame pulpits, having messages that do not pierce the heart and do not confront the sin. And it is in total opposition to the teaching of scriptures. Now, let me read again for you this same passage in Titus from the literal Lavender Bible. It says, For the grace of God appeared, saving to all men, teaching us that having renounced ungodliness and the worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously. Again, that word righteously is from the Greek base word of dikasune. Righteous, innocent, rendered innocent, and godly in the now age, that is the present time, awaiting the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself in our behalf in order that he might redeem us from every iniquity and might cleanse us for himself, a people as a possession, zealous of every good work. You must speak these things, both encourage and expose with all authority. Let nobody outthink you or despise you. Now, on this issue of what true grace is, it's obvious that Jesus Christ is true grace. Charis, the word for, Greek, for uh, grace in the Greek, means literally divine influence. It is Jesus coming with his mighty power and through the power of his blood 
shed at Calvary and through the washing by the Holy Spirit to make us righteous. So when a person comes forward at an altar call and the question is asked, will you accept Jesus? And then the pastor says, now you're saved. That pastor is lying to you. A sinner's prayer is not the means by which we enter into salvation. That's simply sentimental hocus-pocus. The question, again, is not whether we have accepted Jesus. The question is, has Jesus accepted us? And on what basis will he accept us? And I want to propose to you that the only basis upon which Jesus can accept us is if we allow him to make us holy, make us righteous. He does that, first of all, by offering his blood as an atonement. But remember the Greek word for justification means to be made righteous, to be rendered righteous. The word justification is an old English word, and its original form, it meant to make righteous. Now, these salvation words have been corrupted in our day. They were corrupted in Calvinism, and the corruption has continued to grow even into our day. Justification has come to mean simply the wiping away of our sin of the past. And they claim that Jesus finished the work at the cross, both past, present, and future. Now, if that were true, there would be no reason for Jesus to be serving in the temple in heaven, not made with human hands. The temple on earth was simply symbolic, a model, a type of the sanctuary that's in heaven. And so when Jesus died on Calvary, the work was finished only in the sense that all of the provision was provided that was necessary for us to be washed of our sins and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So if a person says to you, you are saved, but you're continuing to walk in your sin, he's lying to you. True grace is never a blanket that covers over wickedness. True grace is that which removes wickedness by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus now serves in that heavenly tabernacle, quote, book of Hebrews. That's where it is most clearly expanded, but it's also spoken of in many other places, that Jesus is now doing the work of applying the blood to your life and calling you forth out of darkness into righteousness. That's the work of grace. And then you come to First Peter, let me read this for you. It's it's very fascinating. First Peter, the fifth chapter. I'll begin with verse twelve. It is 
words of farewell that Peter is speaking. By Sylvanus, the faithful brother to you as I regard him, I write with few words, encouraging you and testifying to this to be true grace of God in which you stand. He's, he's saying in this conclusion, I have spoken to you of what I call true grace. Now let me read for you what true grace is. Earlier in the fifth chapter, he begins in verse 5, you must put on humility because God sets himself against the proud but gives grace to the humble. Consequently, you must be humbled under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the right time, having cast all your worries upon him, because he cares for you. And it's interesting, in the Greek construction, the words having cast are past tense. It means once and for all, we cast upon Jesus all of our cares, all of our worry. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, I want you to watch carefully what's happening here. And you must pray as I've had to and wrestle with this to understand the depth because it is so foreign to our American thought process. He says, consequently, you must be humbled. Consequently, meaning, because God sets himself against the proud, the self-sufficient, the arrogant. But he gives grace to the humble. So the first step in salvation will be that God must humble our hearts. He must humble our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit and expose to us the depth of our sin. So you see, if, if all I need to do is say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I accept Jesus, and now I'm saved, there has been no humbling of my heart. There has been no crucifixion. Jesus said, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow me. Where was he going? He was going to his great humility to the cross. And if you are going to follow Jesus, you are not following Jesus, first of all, to a crown. You are following Jesus, first of all, to the thorns. You are following him to the flogging. You are following him to the crucifixion. Because God sets himself against the proud. God has set himself against the American church. Because the American church has bypassed the crucifixion. And all of us desire an easier way to enter into salvation. We would like to keep all of the benefits of being an American citizen. 
we would like to keep all of the benefits of our wonderful American lifestyle. We would like to keep everything that we love about our life. And then we would like to add Jesus to an already full life. So yes, I want to keep my internet. I want to keep my cell phone. I want to keep my entertainment. I want to keep my job. I want to keep everything that I love. And I'm not saying that we must cut off our telephones or even the internet. But I am saying that if we have made gods of these things and they absorb our time and our attention and are not tools to be used for the kingdom of God, then we are trying to add Jesus to an already full life. And so God sets himself against us. It says he gives grace to the humble. In other words, he gives to the humble a way of entering into salvation. He gives a way for those willing to be crucified. Now, God did not crucify Jesus. That was the work of sinful men. That was the work of the devil. He thought he could kill God not understanding that God would rise from the dead and in the process provide an avenue of escape for each of us. But only if we go to the cross. The cross is the necessary step if we are going to enter into righteousness. Now, in verse 6, he says, Consequently, you must be humbled under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the right time. We want the exaltation without the humbling. And that is not possible because God sets his heart against the proud. Now, in this process of being humbled, we're going to be flogged. We're going to go through many trials and much suffering. But it is not going to be Jesus Christ who causes us to go to judgment. Jesus only presents himself before the second coming as the Redeemer, as the lover of our hearts, our souls. He comes only with grace to open before us the way of salvation. I want you to watch what the Scripture says. Verse 8, you must be sober. You must be alert. Your accuser the devil is walking around as a roaring lion seeking somebody that he may devour. The devil comes accusing you. God does not accuse you. 
the devil comes as our accuser. And if he has grounds for that accusation, and we refuse to surrender that ground of accusation against us, if the devil comes and he says to the Lord God of heaven, look, that person is filled with lust or bitterness or anger or alcoholism, lying, cheating, whatever the sin is, then the devil has the right to bring every suffering into your life. He comes accusing. He comes to devour you. He comes to eat you. He comes to possess you. And the scripture is saying, you are going to have to be very sober. You're going to have to be very alert. You're going to have to be on guard because there is a war on. Now, please, may I say something that may sound strange to you. We live on a prison rock. It is not safe for any of us to dwell on this earth. We are but a day away from starvation. We are but a day away from having cancer and dying. Death is a constant companion to us as long as we live on this earth. That's why he's saying, cast all of your cares upon Jesus. Because the devil comes to devour us. He comes to destroy us. He comes to destroy relationships. He comes to possess. Your accuser, the devil, is walking around as a roaring lion, seeking somebody that he may devour. He wants to devour you. And some of you who are listening today are being devoured by Satan. Your heart is filled with pride. You think you are self-sufficient. You're very religious. I want to tell you, pride loves to hide most of all in the church. Pride is the chief sin of the American church. It has been my chief sin. Self-sufficiency. Hardness of heart. Pride. Verse 9 says, you must set yourself against him, that is, the lion. In other words, you must take a position of defensiveness against the lion. But if you've been taught that you don't need to worry, you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, you can walk in your sin God loves you, so you're saved, you're on your way. God loves you unconditionally. Such utter garbage. If you hear someone say, God loves you unconditionally, you must quickly ask them the question, then how come the Bible teaches that there is a hell? How could God cast me into hell for sin if he loved me unconditionally? He doesn't love you unconditionally. There are very stern conditions for you to be loved by God. And God sets himself against the proud. And the devil comes and accuses. 
and if you have not cast your cares upon him. I mean, God allows this to go on. Jesus allows this persecution, this destruction to come in order to know what is in our hearts. Do you remember the story of the children of Israel as they come out of Egypt? And in that desert place, God sends them manna. He sustains them. But God could have set that that manna on crystal plates, china. He could have put it in their tent on a table, but he didn't do that. Instead, he put it out in the desert on the floor, and they had to go and carefully gather it, separating it from the dirt, and they had to do that on their knees. He humbled their heart. Deuteronomy 28. God humbled them by putting the manna in the dirt and making them go out and pick it up on their knees. He did that in order to see what was in their hearts. We also find that he sent scorpions and poisonous snakes. He let them thirst. All of that to see whether or not they would put their trust in him, whether they would put their worry upon him, whether they would believe in him. And they could not pass the test. And they ended up being left in the desert and dying there. Forty years of wandering as the men of that day died. Why did they die? Because they refused to put their trust in the Almighty God. And they refused to be righteous before him. Now today, every kind of suffering comes upon us. Christians get cancer. My precious wife, five years ago this May, died of cancer. I cared for her in my bedroom, ministering to her to the very last hour, holding her in my arms as she took her last breath. We had prayed and believed that God would heal her. We had asked for that healing. We had not doubted in our hearts. But he took her. She went through incredible sorrow and suffering. But one day, as I came into the bedroom where she was bedridden, she said to me, I've cast all my care upon the Lord. And there was absolute peace in her face. And while she was extremely sad to leave behind her husband and her church family, she was joyous that her work was finished. For Jan, dying was like walking from one room to another room. and she was rejoicing in Jesus. She said to me, The Lord the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How could she say that? Dying of cancer, leaving her grandchildren behind, leaving her husband behind, leaving her church that she so deeply loved 
How could she how could she be so filled with joy? In the face of her suffering, she had cast all of her worry upon Jesus. Now the Lord is saying through Peter, you must set yourself against that lion. Don't believe his lies. Don't believe that you can continue to walk in your sin and you'll be saved. Don't believe these lies of this modern culture of unconditional love. Understand, you must take a warfaring position against the devil. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing the same sufferings are being endured by your brotherhood in the world. Now he says, now the God of all grace, the one having called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and power into the ages of the age. In other words, this is not a, a short-term deal. This is a process that God must take us through, and it is called true grace. It is called true grace. Now, when we look in other places in scripture because we do not want to establish theology on just one portion of scripture. But if we look at the faith chapter in the book of Hebrews, we see incredible suffering that has taken place. We see people who have not received the promise they died before the promise was fulfilled to them. Let me read just a portion of this. Some were tortured, not having accepted the deliverances that they may experience a better resurrection. This is Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 35. And now 36, and others experienced trial of mockings and scourgings and even of fetters and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were tempted to sin, they died by murder with the sword, they wandered about dressed in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, being afflicted, being tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in uninhabited regions and in mountains and caves and the holds of the earth. And all of these, having been confirmed by the faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better, better things concerning us, that apart from us they might not be made perfect. In other words, these people wandered in the old covenant, not receiving the promise, going to the grave. This is grace. 
Grace is not some cuddly blanket that God covers over our sin. God comes and actually removes the sin, and he removes the sin by bringing us into places and allowing the devil to come against us in ways that bring extreme suffering to our hearts and humble us before God. Remember, God sets himself against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So chapter 12 begins, So then, we also, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, have already taken off and laid aside every conceivable weight and the easily ensnaring sin. The writer now of the Pauline writings, of Peter's writings, and now the writer of Hebrews, which was probably not the Apostle Paul, saying, we have laid aside every conceivable weight that easily and the easily ensnaring sin. The normal life of the Christian under grace is to not walk in sin. And if anybody has said to you, you are always going to sin until you die, they are lying to you. They are teaching you a Gnostic gospel. They are not teaching you the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us through suffering, sometimes great suffering, to take a stand against the devil, to take up the sword, the sword of the Spirit, and walk righteous before God. He says, looking away unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured a cross, having disregarded shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We too must walk through that shame. We too must endure the cross. For you must consider the one, verse 3, having endured such rebellion by sinners against himself, so that you may not be discouraged in your soul, losing heart. You did not yet oppose to the point of blood, contending against the sin. Why do we not contend with blood against the sin? Because Jesus died for our sin and he extends to us grace. And that grace teaches us and empowers us to say no to sin and to walk free in the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, my son, you must not regard lightly discipline from the Lord, neither become weary under his chastening. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and corrects every son whom he redeems. You endure because of discipline. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Now if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So the modern church in America is an illegitimate church because it has refused the discipline of God. It has said, I am saved because Jesus covered me with this blanket that they have called grace. And so they are considered by God as proud 
and God sets himself against them. There must be a radical change in the church in America. There must be a radical change in every man's heart and every woman's heart. And we must break in our heart the lies that we've been taught about a Gnostic gospel. We must come to an understanding that the gospel is crucifixion. The new birth only comes through death. You enter into the womb of God by dying, by humbling your heart, by seeking him with all of your heart, with loud cries, with tears, with confession. And if you have not done this, then you are still filled with self-sufficiency. You are filled with the pride of your heart. And you must humble your heart before Almighty God. And you must ask him to come and discipline you and show you the reality of the cross. You must see Jesus on that cross, and then you must see Jesus as the risen Lord. You must be transformed and washed and made clean by the blood. Verse 9, Hebrews 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we used to have fathers of our flesh to discipline us, and we were respecting them. Will we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits, and we will live? For they were a few days used to discipline us according to the things seeming good to them, but he for the things benefiting us, for us to partake of his holiness. There is no partaking of the holiness of God without suffering. People will call you fanatical. They will say you have lost your mind. They will expect you to come and plunge with them into the wickedness of the worldly professional sports. They will scorn you when you will not go to the movies with them and feast on the lust of the human heart and the darkness of our age. They will scorn you when you turn away from the casual and indifference, the foolish talk. They will scorn you when you constantly speak of Jesus. Are you willing to endure the discipline of God and be a sold-out true believer in Jesus Christ and take up your cross and follow him and deny yourself this American life? Now all discipline for the present does not seem to be joyful but painful. Then later it gives back the peaceful fruit of righteousness to the ones having been trained by it. Have you been trained by your suffering? Or have you suffered and just grown angry and bitter of heart? Hopeless, depressed, discouraged. God is trying to desperately bring into your life righteousness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that holiness only comes through self-denial, through taking a stand against the devil as he throws every fiery dart at us. 
through God coming through every tribulation of our life to discipline us, to cause us to become sober and awake. Verse 12. This is Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, what's the therefore referring to? The discipline of God that does not seem joyful, but very painful, that has given us the fruit of righteousness, if we've been trained by it and not rebelled against it. Therefore, verse 12, you must strengthen the hands having been weak and the knees having been feeble and you must make straight paths for your feet that the lame may not be turned aside but rather may be healed you must pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord to understand my dear brother, my dear sister, if you are not made holy through the discipline of God, if you do not strengthen, if you do not strengthen your feeble feet and your weak knees by spending time in the scriptures, by earnestly praying, by walking in obedience to his command, by walking in forgiveness and not in bitterness. If you do not submit and humble your heart before God, you cannot be saved. If you walk in self-sufficiency and you pursue your own plans, you pursue your own way and you try to use Jesus to improve your life so that you can live the life you want to live. And you go to church to receive some inspiration and, and fellowship with other people. But in your heart, you know you have never totally committed your heart to Jesus Christ and submitted yourself to the discipline he wants to bring into your life. If you have fought against every form of suffering. If you've used your credit card and your insurance and your every American tool to avoid ever having to trust in Jesus, if you have not been tried in the fire, you cannot be saved. grieves my heart to say these things today because I know I know the pain and the suffering of God's discipline I know the agony of soul in fighting and standing firm against the devil as he tries to destroy everything that you hold precious I know the suffering of those I love turning in anger against me because of my stand for Jesus. I 
I know the pain of the Spirit in me when I say I no longer need the applause of men. I no longer need the success of large crowds coming to the church. I no longer need to be looked upon as a holy man. I know the pain of letting go of approval from every person except Jesus, being misunderstood, being talked about, being cursed. The pain of having people curse me because of the word I speak on this radio. The pain of being exposed to scorn and loss. I know the shame of not being self-sufficient. But of having to trust in another. But you see, I also know the joy of fellowship with Jesus Christ. I know the joy of being made holy. I know the joy of having Jesus love me in ways I never imagined possible. I know the joy of the adventure of being used by God to speak his word into sinners' hearts and see them turn from their darkness and begin the journey with me toward heaven. Verse 14 says, You must pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord seeing to it lest anyone falling from the grace of God, lest some root of bitterness grow up that may cause trouble, and by this many be defiled with sin, lest anyone be a fornicator or a godless person like Esau, who in exchange for one meal sold his birthright. Have you sold your birthright? Has the root of bitterness taken possession of your heart? Have many been defiled because of you? Are you a fornicator today? Are you filled with lust in your heart, your mind, and your spirit? Are you a godless person like Esau? I want to tell you there is a man by the name of Jesus who loves you with an everlasting love who has made a way for you to be made holy and clean. It is the cry of my heart that you would be made holy. Almighty God, I come before your throne of grace, confessing 
that, yes, I too have been a proud man for most of my life. And that by your grace, you're breaking all of that pride in my soul. I plead today for each person listening to this broadcast that they will not simply dismiss it, but that rather they would turn and understand what true grace is and begin to plead with you to humble their hearts and to take them through whatever is necessary that they could be saved, that they would flee from cheap grace, false grace, Gnostic grace. Lord, I plead that today you would enter into the heart and mind of every person listening to this broadcast and remove from them the pride of their casualness, the pride of their lack of concern regarding anything but an intellectual pursuit of you. Lord, I plead now for your people. For many of them have a sentimental love in their heart for you. They have some intellectual understanding that they need you. But most have never considered the true cost, either to you or to them, to enter into salvation. Lord, I plead your mercy today. I plead, Lord, that you would awaken their hearts. I plead that you would begin to disturb them, that they would begin to see the desperate need of their spirit to come into your presence with humility and begin to cry aloud that they could experience true holiness in their personal life that you would come with transforming power and change, O God. Lord, I plead your blood. I plead your blood, Jesus, that one word spoken today could pierce the heart of someone who has believed a false gospel and yet their heart is crying out and saying, this doesn't do it for me. I must have more of Jesus, but I don't know how to get it. Lord, bring them into a place of humility before you and extend to them your grace. Teach them how to stand against the devil and teach them how to endure the suffering necessary to bring true righteousness into a person's heart. Please, Lord, Hear my cry on behalf of your people today. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I'd like to invite you to come to the prayer chapel. We're located renting space from the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, just off Route 95. We have people driving from 
Frederick Maryland from Gaithersburg, Dumfries, from all over the metro area, Prince George's County, Hyattsville. These are people who earnestly desire Jesus. If you earnestly are hungry for Jesus and you want more and have not found it, then I invite you to come this Sunday to the National Prayer Chapel. We're located at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. That's the All Saints Anglican Church, 14851 Gideon Drive, right next to the Hilton Memorial Event Center. This is in Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. I also invite you to write to me, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will disturb you and bring you into his discipline and make you holy. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.